you are making me look bad, but I'll look worse <laughs> if I'm here sweating. Yes. So welcome, Mr. Jalbert, CEO of Forbes Global Properties. Thank you so much, Mark. So good to see you. Great to see you, my friend. How long has it been? Oh, gosh, it's got to be get close to six months. Six months. Well, how long have you been at Forbes? Uh, last September, I started. Yes, and how's that going? It's going great. I mean, very exciting. A lot of learning on my part. We have an outstanding group of uh, member brokers around the world. Uh, fairly young. You know, the company's only been out there since December of 2020, which, as you know, was not a great time to launch a new business. Oh, I know. I launched March of 2020. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, despite that, uh, 450 offices, 22 countries, uh, but just under 14,000 agents. Amazing. And it's yeah, amazing. the business is really very exciting. That's great. We'll get into that even further, but uh, sure. let's rewind. Um, let's uh, get some background on you. Sure. Who are you and what have you been doing in real estate for the last 20 years, in business for the last 20 years? Yeah. So prior start, to that. I'm starting at 20 just because of uh, that's no, it's, let's, real estate, but right, you can yeah. go further if you want. No, just let you know, I started my career in, in uh, frankly, the soft drink business. I was uh, with Pepsi, part of PepsiCo. I was down there for a number of years. Um, had, frankly, some great success. It was very exciting. Really enjoyed it. Then I got recruited into a company called Allied Signal, which is now Honeywell. Had some success there. And following that, recruited into uh, what was then Sendent Corporation, which then became Realogy, which is now Anywhere. And uh, I was part of the leadership team that managed the real estate division of that company, which was very exciting. Did some work working for the parent for a few years and then actually got recruited again to our largest international customer and ran a business in Europe for almost seven years. What was that business? ERA Europe. ERA Europe. ERA right. Europe. And when I was at Sendit, they had uh, three brands, Cowell Banker, Century 21, and ERA. And we launched- All the, under all, Realty. All, yeah, all Which under Realty, exactly. They've expanded to a number of other brands since then. Uh, ERA Europe was their largest international, our largest international client. I joined them initially as the chief development officer, then vice chairman, and managing the business. When I joined there, we had uh, probably 300 offices in five countries. When I left there about seven years later, we had 1,500 offices in 17 countries doing business in 12 different languages. Uh, we had about 10,000 agents working out of our offices. Very exciting pan-European opportunity. Frankly, never thought I'd leave that, Mark. Loved it. But then I got recruited actually to be CEO of a recruitment business. Interesting. They were looking for someone with international. In real estate or just No, it, it, was, it was across all sectors. Uh, it was the third largest executive search firm in the world by revenue. Uh, yet it was a franchise network. We had uh, 4,000 recruiters in 80 different countries. And that was very exciting. So I really was but, in the... Sorry, specific yeah. to executives. So like... Well, it, it was interesting. We, we did C-suite all the way down to project work okay. uh, and even contract staffing. So it was really a fully integrated uh, search firm. Amazing. Very exciting. And uh, was it really in the people business until our mutual friend... Which you're good at. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Uh, Gino Blafari uh, and I uh, got together in uh, the summer of 17 for a conversation about joining... His new venture, he was CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services at the time, mm -hmm. had recently successfully sold his company in Tarot to Berkshire Hathaway to take on that role. 
And that's where I spent the next five years. Uh, ultimately, I was the executive vice president of global development, had a team of vice presidents and directors that reported into me and managed the growth of the company as well as some internal processes. Including um, your Canadian growth? And including this fine company, Mark, yeah. which was, right. you know, frankly, I think you're the largest global affiliate, which means affiliates outside the United States that Berkshire yeah. Hathaway Home Services has. And hats off to you and the team doing great here. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. And then uh, last summer, a, a big surprise, frankly, out of the blue, uh, the board of Forbes Global Properties reached out to me and started a conversation about coming over as CEO of Forbes Global Properties. And after some conversations back and forth and really understanding the opportunity, it looked like, uh, frankly, something I couldn't resist. And Gino, in his fine spirit, was ever the gentleman and supportive of the opportunity for me. And True leader. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I started September of last year, so it's been, you know, six, seven months since I've been here, and uh, really uh, exciting opportunity. And I happen to be in town because I'm talking to some folks uh, from other parts of the world who also happen to be here. Uh, so it made it easier to travel here than now you're talking be. to my competition. Well, <laughs> they're in different parts of the world. Yeah, I perfect, just happen to perfect. be in your town. Keep them there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's great to connect, and thanks for inviting me to be part of this. This is oh, exciting. Thanks for coming. It's really exciting to have you back up in Toronto. Like I said, it's been eight months. But, um, you know, you and I started working together when you brought me into the, the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Network. Yes. In uh, March, actually March 19th of 2020, when everything shut down, as you know, for the pandemic. And um, you and I became very close. You're very helpful and supportive through our expansion and our growth over the last three years. Uh, we became friends, obviously. Um, you're a mentor to me and uh, a confidant to this day. I think we probably still talk once or twice a week. If Absolutely, not we, we do, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess that leads me to question, you know, I've relied on you for accounts over the last three years and this expansion and the growth that we went through because it was a lot at once, yeah. right? So um, who, who over the years have you relied on? Who, who have you looked up to? Who's influenced yeah. you? You know, if you're answering my questions and, and counseling me, who's counseling you? Sure. Um, Without question, my mentor, if I had to have one, was a, is a gentleman named Bill Wilson. When I joined Pepsi, uh, Bill was the executive that ran the geography where I joined. He was the area vice president of New England when I started there as a first-line manager. And over the years, uh, Bill actually promoted me several times to different roles. Ultimately, I ended up as vice president of national sales in the U.S., but Bill, uh, to this day, is a is still a great friend. He recently retired where he was for the last, I think the last 20 years. Bill was the CEO of Pepsi New York. They also had a number of other businesses, and that's part of a big holding that the Honickman family has, both in the beverage, beer and soft drink business. Okay. Multi-billion dollar business. And Bill is ever the coach, friend, mentor, challenger, um, probably one of the toughest bosses I ever worked for, Mark, which I think always brought the best out in me, fair, even-handed, frankly, a lot of fun, very social. Tough with fair is good, right? Absolutely. It's really what you want, the challenge, the stretch. Um, you know, you he puts you in a pool, you start to swim, think you mastered it, he drag you out, put you in a bigger pool. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was great. Yeah. So he would be the number one. Um, second gentleman actually was a colleague when I was at Sendent. He was the CFO of the company owned operations, which was a 
joint venture with Apollo Corporation, a guy named Greg Hunt. Um, I've heard you mention that name yeah, before. Greg's yeah. still a good friend. And he went on to become the CFO at Apollo, where he's still at in, in this today. And Apollo was one of the largest private equity firms in the world. And They're still I, up there, as far as I know. Yeah, and, and I, I jokingly describe his company as the one that's got all the money. And they're very active across the world in many sectors, many geographies. And so Greg, his business acumen, his calmness, his friendship, um, run ideas and thoughts and challenges that I've had over the years with Greg. So Greg and Bill would probably be the number one and two. And the fun part about that is their long-term relationships. I've known Bill Wilson four decades. I've known Greg going on two and a half decades. And that's true mentorship, true, true relationship. Well, let me ask you this then. Do the calls get less frequent? Because I probably, <laughs> over the three years. Depends on what's going on in the world <laughs> yeah, and in your business. Exactly. Um, you know, it's an interesting point. Yes, yeah, certainly they do. And there are other mentors that have creeped into my life. Gino Blafari would be one. For sure. You know, that I've spent, you know, a good part of the last decade with. Yeah. Um, the fun part about a true mentor is it doesn't matter when's the last time you spoke to them. When you connect again, it's like it was just yesterday. It's like childhood friends. Right? Yeah, exactly. Ten years. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And there's typically some sarcasm or quick wit or teasing that goes on that's part of that conversation, which means you know you're at bedrock, you know, exactly. in that relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So young people, what, what advice do you have for young people uh, starting out? You and I kind of fell into our relationship, right? You brought yeah. me into the network. You were my point of contact at Berkshire Hathaway uh, when, I, when I transitioned from our previous firm into the network. So our, our relationship happened very organically. But yeah. uh, what about young people that are trying to establish mentorship or trying, trying to find yeah. the right mentor? Do you have any advice on uh, people and how they set out to do that? Or is it something that has to happen organically? Well, it's, it's interesting, Mark. I think there are two possible lanes for a mentor and a mentor-mentee relationship to develop. One is unconscious competence, where it just naturally occurs and happens. And I think the other lane is seeking that out. And I think in either lane, the relationship has to be genuine. For sure. There has you to, have to like each other. They have to like each other. There has to be a cadence, an energy, a relationship that develops between the two, a trust. Um, there has to be a chemistry. That's part of it. I think the other part of it is um, there has to be value for both sides. Um, if a mentee is looking for a mentor, I think that, and this is probably difficult for the mentee to drive, how do you drive value into that discussion for the mentor? Mm -hmm. um, how do they get a value out of it, either by giving back or maybe you're in the same organization and they're helping grow you and stretch you to take on more responsibility in that organization or add value somehow business-wise? Um, so I think, that, I think the magic is if I'm a young person in the lane of trying to find a mentor, I've got to look for a relationship that's real, and I've got to look for a relationship that somehow can be balanced in that the mentor feels a real value out of that relationship and it sustains itself. Yeah, and I think um, 
the best mentor-mentee relationships happen in the workplace as opposed to separate, right? When, when, you're, when the mentor is, um, is a, uh, someone that the mentee answers to or works under, yeah. it's easier to happen organically. And I think oftentimes the leaders, you know, sometimes we all know, egos can take over and some people get uh, a little bit nervous about grooming someone too much that they're not they're working themselves out of a job so you know the, i think the leadership has to check their ego at the door on that front as well because well, you're only going to make people your team stronger and better and right you actually remind me of a story or an experience i had mark that i think maybe speaks to this even though it's not exactly on point with the question and that is when i was a growing young manager at pepsico um, and i was there long enough to really have a relationship with the most senior leaders in the company and one of the people that I had that relationship with, I'm not suggesting we went out for coffee, but we had a relationship, was Roger Enrico, who, when I first joined Pepsi, he was the executive vice president of the company, went on to be CEO of Pepsi, went further beyond to become CEO of PepsiCo. But I remember in one of the opportunities that I had to spend some time with Roger, we were talking about management and leadership and growth. And his mindset was the following. Take a blank piece of paper, draw a circle in the middle of the paper, small circle, and put in the number of how you'd rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. Well, let's suggest just for a moment, Mark, you're having a particularly um, humble day and you put down you're an eight. Then you draw a circle around that circle and there are people that are inside that circle. And you as a leader and a manager what number on one to 10 would you want those people to be that report to you that are inside that circle? For sure. And I said to Roger, well, if I'm an eight, I'd want them at least to be nines. And frankly, I'd love it if they were tens. Exactly. And he said, that's leadership. That's, right. that's leadership. That's what leadership is. Surround yourself with smart people, right? Exactly. And a lot of folks, if they're an eight, they won't hire more than a seven to be part of that circle. And that's they, exactly they, what I was getting They at. hoard power. Yeah. So Love your stories. Learned that early on from a guy who went on to be quite a leader. <laughs> you have a story for everything. <laughs> That's what happens when you've been around a while. You have what I call scar tissue. <laughs> exactly. Now, you and I, in the three years that we were working together within the Berkshire Network, um, we put a number of deals together and we worked on quite a bit together. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some great successes. And, uh, but, but last year in particular, you helped me put on my big boy pants and we went, we, we almost touched the sun last year, right? Yeah. We went, after we went a, elef elephant hunting. <laughs> we went elephant hunting. I was going to say whale, but uh, we went after a big one, uh, yeah. you know, a really well-rounded um, real estate company, you know, nine figures uh, this company would have been worth. Uh, we got the investors lined up. We had it on the two yard line and we had a explosion of the perfect storm of events that blew that deal up. But um, you know what, when I, when I, the more I think about it, and I always dissect it, and you and I have debriefed on it, we've dissected ourselves. When I, when I dissected, I took so much away. You know, we put tons of time into it, we put um, funds into it, and you know, it didn't go through. Mm -hmm. But the value was what we learned in that process, right? So mm -hmm. my, my question is, is what, what was your biggest takeaway from, from that deal, from, from your side? side yeah. I have had the opportunity to go down paths like that in the past. Some very successfully, some ended up with just the learning. I think the first learning, which is so obvious, where which is kind of like Yogi Berra time, right? 
it ain't over till it's over. Right. It's not a deal till everything's signed and the money is paid. Exactly. Um, the second is that as you're pursuing an opportunity and you're trying to figure out what are the assets you need to make that deal come together, if you're leading the deal from your side and you've got the opportunity to be selective and clear-minded about it, make sure you have enough of a robust stock pool of possible assets that could help you get that deal done. I think that oftentimes if you marry yourself just to one asset, maybe that's financially to help the deal get done. Mm -hmm. If for some reason that financial asset wavers, deals off. But if you had with clear heading said, this is my number one in that lane, but I've also got two others possibly if this doesn't work. So that if the deal can go through, it's not because a third party failed. You had the for sure right players. And that comes with time as well, right? That comes right. with relationships and being able to call in, mm -hmm. pull up the Rolodex and, and call in the right people. As evidenced of our, as our experience, we get into some pretty heady boardrooms <laughs> yeah, that good. were, you know, with captains yeah, of industry top of yeah. their game. I remember sitting in London with you and on the 60th floor, whatever tower, whatever bank you're in, and, and thinking to myself, how did I end up here? <laughs> and it was some interesting. Names, right? If you remember, we had some folks with us that were really big names. Yeah, absolutely. And the boardroom that was full of the bankers, both in the room, live on the screen from New York, live on the screen from India, it was a pretty wild group. And poor Reagan, our CFO, was sitting on the West Coast, <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning trying to keep up. Exactly. Pouring himself coffee after coffee. He, he did a great job. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was It was a really fun experience. And uh, like I said, it was a big learning experience. And yeah, there's so, so many takeaways from that, right? The other thing that I think you should take away from that discussion is if you remember correctly, when it came to certain industry questions, decisions, operating, they look to you as the expert that you are. And I think you would agree with me that it really helped you grow in confidence in terms of really knowing your game. Yeah, for sure. And knowing our plan. Exactly. Right? Like part of that whole process that I, actually probably the, the most exciting part of the process or, or the most valuable, I should say, part of the process was putting the plan together, right? Like you and myself and Christine and, and Reagan uh, and the team here in Blair. And there were some like, great strategies that uh, we actually you, connected to operational tactics. Yeah. It was, it was great stuff. It was a very robust plan and mm -hmm. it was a very well thought out plan. Um, and yeah, I agree with that. I think they looked at that plan and, and they appreciated it as well from their end. And that was a, a substantial company, even compared to us. Like it's oh. a big, it was a big company. And you know, it's been around for 150 years. And they right? came at you with great respect yeah. for the discussion. And you know, hats off to you. You drove the plan. That's You're true. the CEO of that. Thank you. Um, Biggest takeaway, yeah. I, I think that um, from my perspective, it was it was the momentum, right? I never want you never want to rush a deal like that. Yeah. It's it's not something that you can shoot from the hip from on or or, or rush through. But um, I do appreciate the power and momentum, right? Like we were pretty aggressive. Mm -hmm. we, we pulled it together fairly quickly, and mm -hmm. the, the plan that was, mm -hmm. and you know, we, we we were aggressive about getting in front of them as much as we could as well, but. You know, you know, if I had to do it again, I would have been a little bit more aggressive with the timing, right? Keeping the meetings on schedule and not letting delays happen. Like, you know, you can't walk away from your operation. You can't be involved in a plan like this and take your eyes off the prize either from your day-to-day. -day. From the CEO, company, I'm, right? I'm so responsible for the day-to-day -day of the of the operation. Thank God I have a great team here that was covering for me. But um, still, I think um, 
if we had had a little bit more momentum or a little bit more timing on our side, that we might have been in a different position yeah. right now. Right? Well, I mean, what's that old adage? A deal never gets hotter. It just cools exactly. the longer you let it sit. Yeah. So you want to make sure, and it is a momentum sell. And you're, you're, you're just leaving room for instance like happened to happen. Yeah. Right. So, which you can't account for. It's, um, but you know what, in, in, in today's world that we don't know, Mark, given the global economy, given the impact on the industry, maybe it would not have worked out as we had planned. Cause I think to a large extent, nobody's foreseen the challenges that we're involved with right now. Yeah, and that's why I have no regrets. You know, I'm going to take the value that we just discussed mm -hmm. away from it. It's going to be implemented into everything I do moving forward. It's now one of my stories, so I get to tell a story sometime. Exactly. Right? Um, but yeah, let's chalk it up. And after the NDA expires, you can actually say who? Yeah, we'll chalk <laughs> it up. Yeah, we'll just we'll chalk it up to a learning experience. Exactly. So let's dive back into Forbes now. So tell sure. me about the, the Forbes International Properties model. Sure. And, and your plans for, for growth. In that yeah, and you use the word. It's actually Forbes Global Properties. Sorry, yeah. That's okay. And I'm, as you know, I'm always very intentional when you're trying to build a network across many countries, many time zones. Global is such an important word. For sure. Because to me, the global word is one that is inclusive as opposed to international. When you step out of your geography from Toronto, when you fly to Dubai, and you want to have a conversation with somebody about an international opportunity, they look at you and say, well, I'm home here in Dubai. This is domestic. What are you talking about? But when you say global, it's the great unifier. and People love to have a global conversation. So anyway, back to the point. Forbes Global Properties was founded by a gentleman named Jeff Hyland, who if anybody's listening or watching this that knows our industry, you'll know that he very famously founded with his partner, Rick Hilton, Hilton Highland, the luxury real estate firm based in Beverly Hills, California, decades ago. And it is a powerhouse. And over the years, Hilton Highland had been part of other networks. And Jeff, in particular, had a point of view that he thought that there was an opportunity to build a better offering. He thought that offering um, could compete well because he often thought that other networks' ownership oftentimes made decisions that was best for the ownership versus the network or the network members. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit under his skin. And frankly, he also thought that the economics were a little out of balance in terms of paid for things that he didn't uh, want or need. So he set off several years ago to put this network together. The first thing he did was he reached out to like-minded colleagues because he always loved the global impact a global network had on his company, his clients, his agents, and wanted to recreate that. And he found like-minded folks who are now broker owners of our business. We have our board, and they're around the world. It's a, it's a truly global group. Uh, and over the course of working through that, he and our current chair, Bonnie Sellers, who was our co-founder, uh, agreed that not only did they want to put the offering correctly together, but they had to get the branding right. And Bonnie, uh, through her efforts, had an uh, discussions with Forbes and Michael Federley, who's the CEO of Forbes, and he loved the idea for Forbes to be part of a global luxury real estate network. And just a little bit about Forbes. It just makes sense, right? Yeah, it, it does. You know, Forbes has been around 105 years, yet it's still very contemporary. Mm -hmm. And the magic of Forbes is they think about themselves as the playbill. You know, if you're if you go to the 
theater. The Playbill is, is the program. They think of themselves as the playbill for the entrepreneurial success stories. Mm. They write about people. They write about people and their business experiences, what they build, how they built it, tell those stories, teach those lessons. And they also talk about how once the entrepreneur is successful, how do they enjoy that success? So it has great connections in the lifestyle, travel, real estate. So he loved that connection. Um, company was launched December of 2020. As we both know, arguably not a great time. But here again, as I said up front, we, we've got a great membership. We're 22 countries, and the opportunity is still to grow it fairly significantly. And uh, so where to start then? Um, what what, um, what companies did it? It started with Hilton Highland in um, Beverly Hills, California. Okay. Willis Allen, which is in San Diego, um, started with a company in Melbourne, Australia. Um, Alicante, Spain, uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, Paris, France. December 2020. That's a, that's oh, a yeah. lot of damage. So that's the story. Now we have you know, members in. East Coast, New York, here in Canada. We're in three cities up here, soon to announce a new one. Um, we're in Europe. We brought in a huge firm in London last year, Chesterton's. We've got a great well, company a, in Monte a, Carlo. That's a big one, Chesterton's. That's, yeah. a, that's an old brand. That's an established firm. Well, I was just saying Forbes is 105 years old. Chesterton's is 210 years old. That's just wild, right? Like as, yeah. as Canadians, as Americans, like yeah. a 200 year old company, that's amazing. Yeah. That's uh, quite the legacy. It's exciting. Yeah. We've got a wonderful company in Dubai. We're talking to folks in uh, India and Egypt. We've got wonderful companies in Hong Kong, Singapore. So these, these companies are operating as either independent. I, I also have to mention Hawaii Life. They're also one of our founding companies. The CEO is on our board. And they're the largest brokerage in the state of Hawaii. It's an excellent company. Good excuse for you to go to Hawaii. Not that I need one, but yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, the, these companies, they're, they're interdependent brokerages. They're parts of franchises. Um, like you don't necessarily have to be an independent brokerage. You can be part of a bigger uh, franchise. You can, you can be part of a bigger ownership group. We, we, we are The board and I are very cautious about franchise only because of our target. Our target is the luxury client. Correct. That's our world. Yep. So we have to be very cautious of how do we connect to brokerages, how do we connect to agents to get to that luxury So you don't client. necessarily have to be a company. You can be a, a group or a team or an individual agent that has market share in those luxury sectors. Is that right? Yeah, you have to be re represented though as a business. Okay. The back end, to your point, sometimes is not traditional. Yeah. But it has to be seen as a customer, consumer-facing brokerage company. Right. Okay. 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 So that's taking you around the world, and, that, and that's what you did at Berkshire as well. You're all around the world. Every time I talked to you, I was talking to you whether you'd be in India or any number of places in Europe. Lots of travel. I'm sure you're probably in the same type of boat right now, doing you know, trying to knock it out around the world. Yeah. Um, so you're getting to see what, what we're all, you know, we're dealing with what we're dealing with here in the GTA, Greater Toronto area, uh, as far as the market conditions are. Mm -hmm. what, what are you seeing around the world right now in this business? Yeah, I mean, the geopolitical reach of what's going on in the world has no bounds. It, it is a global challenge right now. Interest rates, um, shortage of housing, 
Um, and, and there's some legacy there, Mark, that is really built into the experience now that was different than the global financial crisis back in 07, 08. Just as a reminder, back in 07, 08, when we had the global financial crisis, the average inventory in most markets exceeded a year. And sometimes that inventory was as high as 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means there was a lot of homes that were for sale. And when the global crisis hit, at, you know, the builders took it on the chin and a lot of them never recovered. So by the time we ran into the COVID pandemic, days, you know, the average inventory was still less than six months in many markets and many, it was even less than that. So the pressure that that put on uh, prices, um, so there was an expectation when the pandemic hit by many in the real estate world that it was going to have the same effect as it did during the global financial crisis. It and it went exactly yeah. the opposite. Yeah. Now, Which why it was so nerve-wracking for us when we yeah. converted March 19th. Like, literally, that's, it was two days after everything shut down in the province, in the went, country, <laughs> and the world. We, yeah. we were quite nervous. Yeah. But who would have thought ha would happen what happened? It, it, exactly. And, and it happened, for whatever reason, more dramatically here in North America, which is primarily... Canada and the US than it did in the rest of the world. So it was a much more severe spike. Mm -hmm. And that spike was driven by all kinds of things, as you well know, people having to stay in their home, work from home. Oftentimes, two income earners had to find a way to work from home. You, you, they wanted to have an outdoor space, whether it be a deck or a yard or a garden. And it just drove inventory and prices crazy, right? There are just a lot of transactions. Now, the dirty little secret was a lot of people said there's no inventory, but that wasn't it. It was the inventory was spinning so fast that it couldn't keep up. But the spike was dramatic in North America, and it was less dramatic in, honestly, the rest of the world. So now, as we're going through the trough on the other side, the trough here is much more severe in North America than it, we're seeing in other parts of the world. They're just not seeing the same fall off. It's falling off, but not as dramatically. Right, okay. So, so you, you got a tiger by the tail is really the story here, right, Mark? Exactly. <laughs> so how do you see that affect in the brokerage industry, right, as a whole, like at a macro yeah. level, like we're talking about the big companies, the franchises, the compasses, the Berkshires of the world. And then, and then after that, we can get to, how do you think it's gonna affect the small guy? How is it gonna affect the brokerage owners, yeah. the guys like me? Well, it's an interesting question, and, and there's layers to be peeled off there, right, Mark? Um, I think the first comment I'd make is that the current model of how most brokerages run their business is many decades old, 50-plus. And a lot has changed in the marketplace over the course of those decades. Uh, the shift in splits that a brokerage has with its agents. The introduction of low-cost brokerages. Right. MLSs, the way they share inventory, or at least markets become more transparent. And the result of that is your bottom line has changed dramatically as a brokerage, where it might have been 25, 40% in the past, net to the bottom line. Today, you're lucky if it's anything even close to 10, mm -hmm. and it might be closer to five. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you just, you've just you got a different business model. So I'd start with that. Um, the impact of some of the players that have come into the market here in North America uh, with very deep pockets, clearly just trying to buy market share and effectively doing so, 
accelerated some of those split challenges, many of them. Absolutely. Changed change things for and, yeah. the rest of the companies in the business, right? Exactly. So well, I, I think that what you have to get out. Now they just have to turn a profit. Well, <laughs> yeah. That's another discussion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, another, that's another discussion. But the effect that it had on you is it changed your model and you had to react. I think the opportunity as a business leader, both of us, different seats, but nonetheless, you have to look out over the next five, ten years and say, where is the market going? How do I offer the value I need to offer ultimately to my consumer, the home buyer, the home seller? What's the right way to offer that value that they want? And what's the distribution that you use to deliver that value. Obviously, agents is the prime distribution model or vehicle. And what's the right relationship you should have with agents so the agent feels fulfilled, challenged, welcomed, has a great career. The client's happy, but at the end of the day, you stay in business because, frankly, there's been such aggressive splits in some of the markets where you want to just say to the agents, Congratulations, you just put your broker out of business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he can't pay the light bill. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about. Like, our company, you know you know our model. We're trying to put the service back in this business. Like, the, the downward suppression of service, like the relationship between the brokerage and the agent, it's been, that service has been compressed and compressed over and over over the last few decades because right. of the suppression on commissions. Right. So the service is literally disappear so right. our big attempt is trying to put the service back into that but we're, we're up against the challenges of like low-cost brokerages and people just thinking so, dollars as opposed so let's to talk about that, that a minute though you know without getting into names we have some wonderful members that run some highly successful brokerages some of them are kind of young years old not decades mm -hmm. yet they just do a masterful job and they come from the industry and they've had agent experience They've sat, as our vice chair at Forbes Global Properties likes to say, they've sat in the living room, sweating through a suit, nervous, am I going to get this listing? Exactly. Right? They've had those hard discussions. They know what it's like to be the tip of the spear. And as they've grown those careers now where they're owning and running the brokerages, they've really identified what does that agent value to help them be successful sitting in that living room, getting that listing. And the brokerages that are able to really give the agents all of the tools that they need to be successful. So to back up, just for a minute, many of the offerings that are in the marketplace today that you would call low cost have limited values that they give to the agents, marketing, social media. Some tech tools are pretty good. But the agent has to spend a lot out of their own pocket, and, and they're time, happy to do time. so, and time, right, and, lack of service, right? in order to put those services together. And the broker owners that I'm referring to now who have been the agents that understand that, if they can keep the balance right of really providing those services in-house, that the agent, beyond the split they're paying the broker, the cost is covered, it's proven to be a very successful model where I've seen it, and the success is really um, dictated by not only is the brokerage successful, 
But the agents in their market that really would like to join this brokerage is around, around the block that they're building. Yeah. Because they're so tight. I find too many too many people in that situation, like too many agents are, are they're, you know, they focus on the expenses a little bit too much, right? The cost of being at that brokerage versus the value. And, 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 and when, they, when they look to save a dollar on those expenses, what value are they giving up? And, and with, with respect, respect, and that's, that's up for you to for solve, right? right? You sure. have to represent what's your value as the company exactly. to that agent. So it's back to what I learned many years ago back in my consumer products days in sales. It's feature. This was not, this is what I got, and benefit. This is why you should care. So, what are the features and benefits that those brokerages offer those agents, so that the agent has an opportunity to really appreciate the value, appreciate not only the features but what does it mean to them, and make their decision based on that. So, with that said, what kind of brokerages or companies are you looking for? From a Forbes perspective, what, what do you look for in, in a company to put the Forbes stamp of approval on it? Well, so, great question. I would say we're a different kind of network than many. We're a membership network with the number one brand in media globally uh, that's been around a long time. We are. Gino's checking the stats right now. I love Gino. Not going to say anything more about that. Um, but number one brand in terms of independent third party measurement. So I, we've actually validated that. But what we're looking for is we're looking for the right member in a market to capture the luxury opportunities in that market. We're looking for folks that know what they're doing in the brokerage business. We're not trying to promote some third party CRM that we cut a deal with. I'm not going to put a trainer in your office to teach you how to recruit and retain your talent. We're looking for great brokerages that know how to run a great business, that are in the luxury space. They want to maintain that, accelerate it, expand it. We're a wonderful tool to help you do that. We're an accelerant to that business. We help you get uh, incredible credibility by leveraging the brand, but we also deliver real eyeballs to the products that you're selling. ForbesGlobalProperties.com would be an example, Mark. It's not a portal. It's much more of a luxury magazine experience. You're going to see gorgeous homes with beautiful pictures. And one of our real strategic thrusts and advantages that we offer is Forbes is a media company known for content. Forbes Global Properties has a chief content officer. And he's got editors and writers that work for him. And we create content, stories about our members' geographies, neighborhoods. We talk about homes. We write about the assets of the home. Maybe there's a celebrity buyer. Maybe there's a business mogul seller. And we really create an experience for people to learn and read and enjoy. And property, as you well know, is aspirational. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves to look at beautiful homes. Whether you can afford a $25 million place or not, everybody wants to pick up a Forbes, ma Forbes magazine, right? Absolutely. And, and that includes high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. They also love to look at and acquire these assets, these homes. So that's our experience. It's, this, it's leveraging this world-class brand, focusing on its history, 
transferring and leveraging that history with Forbes Global Properties, celebrating the fact that Forbes, we are part of Forbes. They're on our board. It's clearly their brand. We are the stewards of that in this industry. And we're their sing single ended entrance into this industry for Forbes globally. I, you know, I know the, um, the power of a good brand just as well as anybody. Of course look at what Berkshire has done for us, right? Yep. Like since we entered the Berkshire network, we've 10 X'd on, on our revenue. So um, what, what are your affiliates or your, your partners? Um, what, what are they saying? How, how is it affecting their business and, and what uh, success stories do you have? Well, let me, let me tell, you tell you a very tactical a story? success story. story. I've already always got a story, Mark. Uh, do we have time? No. Um, so back to that broker I talked about earlier. Um, he was a very successful and still is a very successful agent. He understands prop tech. He invests in it. He develops it. He certainly understands how to build a brokerage and a cadence and an experience. But he also knows how to go out and get a listing. So he tells this story, which I really smile about, was the day he signed his agreement to become part of Forbes Global Properties, he had a listing opportunity. The appointment was for a $16 million home in his area. And he went on the listing appointment, and he's good. He's been in this business 20 years. He is a experienced luxury agent. He's now also the broker owner of the firm, and he's got his marketing pitch his social pitch, he understands the analysis, the marketplace, what's the reach. And he could just feel in this 30 minute meeting, he's getting towards the end of the meeting, that it just it felt like it was slipping through his fingers. And he's sitting here saying, he's pretty confident that we hadn't even yet countersigned the agreement, but he went for it. He said, and oh, by the way, you should know that we just became the exclusive member for Forbes Global Properties in this part of the state to which the vendor, who's trying to decide what to do, said to him, he said, why did you wait until 25 minutes into this conversation to tell me the most important thing that I wanted to hear? Mm -hmm. Give me a pen. Let's sign you up. It's powerful. It's very I powerful. Mean, and, and so man on the street, tactical discussion, uh, it makes a difference. One of our most... Um, verbal supporters um, and the way he describes what we do and what it's done for his business is he calls Forbes Global Properties an accelerant to his business. He was in that strata, but he's in there deeper, better, with more power. And, and that's that's the advocacy you it's want. It's another tool in your belt, right? Exactly. Uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but Blair always uses the analogy because agents love to say that brand doesn't matter on the brand. It's about the relationship. And, you know, relationships are extremely key in this business. Right. But Blair always likes to say, if you have a set of identical twins that are realtors walking into the same listing appointment separately and they talk the same, they pitch the same, everything's the exact same, they look the same, they're dressed the same, and one is with a low-cost brand or a brand that's not necessarily as much as attractive, and then the other one has Berkshire Hathaway Home Services behind it, who's getting the listing? Right? It's just another tool in your belt, so why wouldn't you want that in your belt? Yeah. Right? And I think yeah. that's what Forbes does. Well, the reality is brands are important to consumers. They're For validation. Sure. They give global reach. They talk trust. about experience, trust. And frankly, uh, in other parts of the world outside of North America, brands are even more important. And they're very important here. So, yeah, the, the brand is important. And we are 
both blessed to have great brands that we work for, for work with. And, uh, you know, I think that consumers and business owners in our marketplace uh, clearly agree with us because both of our businesses are growing and we're excited about it. And it's just how people function. Exactly. Okay. We're almost done. Um, but I got one question for you, three answers. Um, you've traveled the world. You're con like I said earlier, you're constantly in a different city. Every time I talk to you, <laughs> name your top three favorite cities. Oh boy. Okay. Top three favorite cities. Well, I've got to go with London as one. For sure. That clearly is uh, just you spent so much time. There. I have, and I, I feel very confident and exciting. There. I love Italy. I know it's not a city, Mark, but there are so many just different parts Italy. of Italy that yeah. are just amazing, wonderful. Love Italy. And then I think the third is maybe a little less traveled, but one that I would encourage everybody to explore, and that's Portugal. Portugal's amazing. Mm -hmm. The people are incredible. Uh, Lisbon is one of my favorite cities in the world. And the investment that the EU has made in Portugal over the last 20 years, it's just an amazing place to not only visit, but even to live. So I would say London, anywhere in Italy, and Lisbon, Portugal. Yeah, I'm very much on point. I haven't been to Portugal. I have to explore it. Um, but I'm hearing amazing things. My friends in Spain are going to be mad at me, but that's my point of view. That's all. <laughs> and last question. Are we ever going to get a chance to uh, work together again? Well, you never say never, never Mark, say never. right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's so great to spend time with you and, and build on this relationship. And, you know, but to that point, we talked about mentorship early on. I haven't worked with some of those mentors in decades, but we're as close now as we ever were. That's great to so hear. So we'll just keep, keep building on the Let's relationship as well. Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. You're welcome. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. My pleasure.